If you would like to follow along uh, in the Pew Bible this morning, it, the scripture passage can be found on page 831. It's Philippians, the second chapter, the first 11 verses. That's page 831 in the Pew Bible. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you, and it's an honor to be preaching this morning. Jim asked me if I would preach one more time while I was still on staff, um, but he has assured me that the word pulpit supply will be used occasionally, so I might be back to preach, but um, it is an honor to be here this morning. And I thought about the passage I would preach, and there's a lot that's been kind of going through my heart and my mind as I'm finishing my time on staff here at the church. Um, I thought about the college students we'll be recognizing, those who will be leaving, and this will probably be my last Sunday with a lot of the Sanford students who come each week during the school year, so it's kind of a, a bittersweet time. So I thought, about what, I thought about a passage that has meant a lot to me, something I wanted to share with you guys and with the college students, um, a passage that has changed my heart and my mind a great deal over the last several years. And so I chose Philippians 2, a well-known, beloved passage, a passage that speaks clearly to the divinity of Jesus and the glory of God. And so I thought I would unpack that a little bit. The problem with passages like this, where do you start? It's sort of like when you go to Golden Corral, it's like, where do you begin there? I mean, there's just so many options. It's like a smorgasbord. I mean, where do you pull from? Um, And so... What I'm going to attempt to do is show how the the humility of Jesus reveals the glory of God and the goodness of God this morning. Paul, in this passage, okay, he is going to call these Christians in Philippi to humility. He's going to put before them what they ought to look like, what ought to be coming out in their hearts and their minds and their lives. But I think it might be helpful to begin 
with what humility is not. Maybe start with a negative. What humility is not? Because I think there's some times in our lives where we can say this is humility and maybe it's not. So just a few uh, points here to consider. What humility is not. First, false humility. Right? When someone is acting like they're not significant or they're not uh, able to do something, when in reality we all know that they're quite able, they're quite good at what they do, but they're showing false humility. They're playing down the gifts that God has given them to appear humble when really they're supposed to be giving God the glory, God the credit for their gifts and abilities, always turning their ability back to God, not trying to downplay it. So false humility, I think we've all seen this. Um, We may have all been at some point guilty of this. That's not genuine. It's not coming out of a genuine heart of humility. It's saying, I know I'm good at this, but I want to appear humble. And so we miss the mark. I would say also being weak in an area where we might need to be strong or on an issue that we need to be thoughtful about. Sometimes, especially in our culture, it can be difficult to speak for what you believe to be true because you want to appear humble um, when it might be an issue or a situation in life where you need to speak up. So it's not being weak necessarily when you need to be strong. It's maybe not even putting differences aside with, say, a family member or something at work where something needs to be dealt with, something needs to be addressed. So it's not false humility. It's not necessarily being weak. It's not putting differences aside and just pretending things don't exist that are difficult. So what is it? What is humility? All these things I just listed are external realities, external actions, things that we do outside, who we're interacting with. And sometimes, I know I do this frequently, I treat that as humility, but I think there's another way to think about this, another way to consider it that I think Paul's going to unpack for us in these these, uh, first five verses. And I want to turn to a writer named Joseph Pieper. Pieper uh, is a great thinker, theologian, writer, and this is what he has to say about humility. Humility... Uh, which is only apparently the opposite of magnanimity. Magnanimity is rising above obstacles and overcoming them. Is not in any sense a forgotten virtue, but it is one. So he's saying humility is one that is often misinterpreted and misunderstood. To anticipate the grossest misunderstanding, humility is not only not an external attitude, it is also not bound to any external attitude. Humility rests on an interior decision of the will. Furthermore, humility is not primarily an attitude that pertains to the relationship of man to man. It is the attitude of man before the face of God. Humility is the knowledge and acceptance of the inexpressible distance between creator and creature. What is he saying there? That real genuine humility in the life of the church, the church history has taught us that humility is Actually, how I am approaching God Almighty. How in my heart of hearts am I approaching the throne of God? True humility is when our hearts, the internal actions of our hearts and minds, are actually bowing down before the glory of God and recognizing Him as God in us as the 
creation. So humility is not uh, necessarily an outward, external action. It is an inward reality that has implications externally. So I think of some people like Martin Luther. Martin Luther, and he struggled with this, we probably, if you know anything about Luther's life, but he was humbled many times before God. Martin Luther would go to confession and confess his sins for hours upon hours, and yet he also defied the papacy. He also defied the teaching of the entire Roman Catholic Church because he was humbled before God and had to stand up for what was good and what was right. I would argue, based on what we're going to look at today in Philippians 2, that spiritual formation, spiritual formation is not accomplished necessarily by checklist of what we ought to do, but about the reality of our hearts and minds before God. Spiritual formation is always a result of our lives bowed before Christ. How we are genuinely approaching Jesus. And when we do that rightly, we see the fruit of the Spirit bearing out in our lives. Relationships changing. The way we approach issues changing. Our lives becoming beautiful because of how we are approaching Christ So I want to look at these verses with you um, briefly this morning. First, verses 1 through 5, Paul calls us to an internal reality. An internal reality. Paul says in Philippians 2 again, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here, he's asking them to have the same mind. In this passage, in these first five verses, he's asking them to consider in their hearts and minds people more highly than themselves. He's asking them to have the mind of Christ. And these are people that are facing external threats. There are real issues plaguing these Christians. They are actually in the midst of suffering. In the the passage just before this passage, Paul talks about how it has been granted to them for the sake of Christ that they should not only believe in his name, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same issues you've heard I had and still hear that I have. They're engaged in these same issues that Paul was facing. And so he's bringing, he says, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, the goal here is not to get away from suffering or trials, but to become one in how you think of one another. Have the same mind. And it's that mind which is yours in Christ. To think of of others more highly than ourselves. And so the trick there is, he is going to put before them the way in which to have this kind of humility. And again, it goes back to this idea of being humbled before God. Throughout scripture, we see people that when they don't become humbled before God, they act out in evil ways among people around them. Pharaoh, why didn't he let the people go? Because he would not humble himself before God. That's what the text says. He would not humble himself. Nebuchadnezzar. You can go throughout the Old Testament and the New when people would not humble themselves before God. It played out in wicked ways. It's a, it's a, it's a vertical relationship with God that when it's not right, 
plays out in a horizontal dimension. And so he's, he's putting before them first this relationship man-to-man. You should think of others more highly than yourselves. Don't look for selfish ambition or conceit. Don't put yourself first. Put yourself last. Well, then our, well, how do you do that, Paul? That's a great idea. All of us would agree with that, I think. All of us would say, yeah, that is great. That's what we want. Um, we have a whole world that would di- desire that, I, I think, for the most part. There's always a few exceptions. So how do we get this mindset? Right? This is the rub. Right? How do we develop this internal mind? And I know if you're like me, if you're a type A, you like checklist. Like, give me some things to do, Paul, like, so I can start checking this off, so I can develop this mindset. Maybe mental exercises, you know, like you got that app on your phone, where if you just do it five minutes a day, your brain gets sharper. Like, give me some things to do. And in fact, I found a list on the internet um, as I was preparing this. If you're familiar with a website called WikiHow, I don't know if you are, but WikiHow is a wiki on how to do anything. And they have eight quick steps for you to become humble. This is actually a real thing, right? Okay, so here's the wiki how. Just eight steps to become humble. Here it is. Ready? Eight steps. One, accept your limitations. (laughs) Right there, most of us are done, right? That's really, that's the step. That's the first one, right? Accept your limitations. Second, recognize your own faults. Three, be grateful. Four, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Five, admit mistakes. Six, avoid bragging. Next, be considerate. And lastly, don't take all the credit. See, it's just eight easy steps. There you go. So uh, we're done here, right? Um, that's, and I love WikiHow because they have these ridiculously cheesy pictures, like cartoon pictures, to explain each step. <laughs> and that's all it takes, right? That's all you have to do to develop humility, What's the problem with this? Two glaring problems. First, we become anxious because we constantly fail at that list. We can't do it. We can't get past step one usually. We fail and we become anxious because when you develop a checklist Christianity, you get really anxious about making sure you're dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's when it comes to spiritual formation. You become anxious. We can't do that list. Or if you could become sufficient, if you could do the list, you become self-righteous, and that might be far worse. So how does Paul help us get this mind? What does Paul give us in this passage to develop this mind? He does not give us steps. He doesn't give us a wiki how. He doesn't give us a guide He doesn't say, okay, you should have this mind, now here's some steps to do it. And this is hard for us because we like steps, we like lists. What he does is he poetically paints the gospel for us. He gives us a person, Jesus, and he gives Jesus work. And he sets this image before us, and it is this image that if we can see it, will change us. It is this that he sets before us that if we see it, will develop this kind of mindset. So look at verses 6 through 11. What does Paul give us to help us develop this mindset? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He doesn't declare what we should do to have this mind. He shows us the mind of Christ and sets it before us. And I'm convinced in my own life, having seen this bear out, that when we look to Jesus, when we see the beauty of Christ, everything changes. It's a backdoor approach to Christianity. We want to do it at the front door, list, make sure I've got all my ducks in a row, and then we just get frustrated because we keep failing. But when we see Christ, and we see his beauty, and we see that he has come for us, and we see the gospel bearing out, it changes us from the inward out, not the outward in. So Paul doesn't declare what we should do. He declares, though, a lot of what Jesus has done. Paul declares that Jesus is God. He says, though, he was in the form of God. And this word form, in the Greek, it's this word morphe. Metamorphosis, you probably hear that word morphe. And we translate it into the English as the word form. Um, And that's problematic because when we hear that, we think of the outward form. Well, then Jesus was on the outward appearance um, like God. But really the idea of morphe means the very essence, the very nature of Jesus was God. Not just the external outward look, not just what he uh, did here through miracles, but the essence of Jesus is divine. It's like H2O. It can look like a liquid, a solid, a gas, and yet its essence remains the same. Its essence, its nature, what it is in and throughout is the same. Jesus is God. This is one of the clearest declarations that Jesus is God. And yet, what did this person who is God in the flesh, what did he do? Though he is God, he did not hold on to it. Verse 7 talks of how he emptied himself, made himself nothing. This is a downward trajectory. If you look closely, he goes from the pinnacle, the creator of the world, the one who gives life to all, and slowly goes down to humanity, to a servant, to death, even death in a humiliating way on the cross. He goes down as far as humanity can possibly go to death. He goes as low as we can go. Now, this does not mean that he divests his divinity. He doesn't give up being God. It simply means that Jesus is going as low as any one of us can go, and as low as any human has ever gone, down to the grave. What is this teaching us? This is teaching us a lot about the nature of God. What is God like? And there's a lot of ways we could fill that in. Maybe uh, the most that jumps to our mind is that God is love. And what is love? To give of oneself. This is actually teaching us a lot about what the Trinity is. What is the Trinity? It's one God with three persons 
who for eternity have existed in a state of self-giving love to each other. The Father giving to the Son, the Son giving to the Father, the Holy Spirit giving back and forth. This eternal eternal relationship of self-giving love. This idea of the Trinity, if you can wrap your mind around it, has been one of the most pivotal changes in my theology over the last decade. Understanding God is eternally existing in a state of self-giving love. Augustine says this, the great early church father, if you are not Trinitarian, you have a defective God. Your God never loved until he created. God doesn't create to get love. He creates to give love. Notice that. The Trinity means that God has eternally existed in a state of love. To have a God that is not Trinitarian means that he has not loved, or it has not loved. That's a big statement. So when Jesus is giving of himself, it is not to get love from us. It is to give it to you and to me. He is giving of himself. How beautiful is this? You want to change your mind. You want to be humble? I want to be humble? How does this happen? If the creator of the world who holds the power of life and death takes on the form of a servant and dies in your place, if that doesn't change your mind, I don't know what will. You see, Paul is going to give us here two sides of the gospel coin. Oftentimes in our churches we We talk about the cross and this beautiful image of Jesus giving up his life. Didn't have to, but chose to, to draw us into him. But the other side of this gospel coin, because the gospel is really two things. It's the cross and the death of Christ, but it's also the resurrection. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's this twofold gospel. So look at the extent with which Jesus goes. This God who existed forever, before the world was created in love, chooses to make himself nothing, giving up everything he has, letting go of all of his rights for you to bring us in to the love of the Trinity. And we go on. So we see that he gives up everything. He goes into the grave. He dies. He goes as low as we could possibly grow. He takes on our death. He takes on our weakness, our humanity, and he enters into the tomb. But then he is raised victorious. Because he has gone so low, he is exalted. Look at what it says. Therefore, in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He is exalted. He's risen from the dead. He defeats death, and he is exalted up. Now, it's important that when we read this word exalted, it doesn't mean that he was kind of God and then become more God, or he was lowly in status with the Father and now is higher in status can't mean that because they're eternally co-equal, Father, Son, and Spirit. What is Paul getting at? The best way I can think of this is, um, I guess maybe I was thinking about college students this week and their exams. Have you ever highlighted a book 
Have you ever read something or a document and you highlight it, maybe you put three stars by it and exclamation points? When you do that, you're exalting that passage, but the passage remains the same. The essence or nature of that passage is identical. The words still mean the same thing. The idea of the author is still present. It doesn't change the idea. Uh, It's simply drawing attention, like this is important. This is ultimate. Know this. See this. Christ defeats death, and he's exalted up as the supreme example of self-giving love. Paul is saying, you want to be humble. We want to be humble. I want to be humble. How is that going to happen? See that the God of all creation has entered into the death of the world, but that he's also risen up, and he reigns victorious. Christ is Lord. Christ is ruler. Uh, we, we see in other Pauline passages where he talks about how every principality is under his feet. There is no ruler equal to God. He alone reigns. He alone rules. He has life in the world. As we just sung this beautiful song, or we, we heard the bells and the sign language, which was so wonderful. He holds the world in his hand. If these two things don't make us humble, I don't know what is. It, he doesn't give us a checklist. He puts the two images of Christ before us, leaving it all behind to enter death, but then rising up and reigning and ruling over the world. These two, when we see it and we understand what it means, we become humble. We let go of our pride. We do as this passage says, right? Every knee bowing. And what we see is that What we're actually witnessing is the very nature of God, the very nature of Christ. It's not that God decided to do something by humbling himself at one point. He is actually revealing the eternal nature, the eternal nature of self-giving. So why do we bow our knee before God? If you ask an average person in our country, I think they might say, well, You don't want to get struck down, but that is not how we see it throughout Scripture. What we see is the beauty of God. The lamb that was slain puts us on our knees. There's a movie you may not have seen. Um, It's fairly new. Uh, It's called The Avengers. I I grew up liking comics a little bit, and so these comic movies are kind of fun to go see. And In The Avengers, the first one, there's this character called Loki. You know, it's just a, a mythical name, Loki. He has these powers, and he decides that he wants to rule the world. So he's going to come, and he is uh, starting to work out his plan for world domination. And there's this scene at a gallery where he is revealing his power to the people, and they're frightened because he's hurting people. And there's a point at which he uses his his abilities to multiply himself, and there's like four or five of them, encircling the people. They're all anxious, they're scared, they're worried. And he has this big staff that he bangs on the ground, and he says, bow, bow before me. And they're all afraid. You know, they're just trembling. They don't know what's going to happen. They're seeing uh, chaos. So they, they get on their knees because they're afraid. And this is how power has worked itself out in our world, Right? The three examples that probably be pregnant in the mind of the original audience here are uh, Augustus, Judas Maccabeus, 
Alexander the Great, these great rulers before Christ who accomplished great through military victory. Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C. was, the, was where we actually have Hanukkah. Right? He resisted Roman authority. He overthrew, cleansed the temple. And this is how we get to the Hanukkah season. Judas Maccabeus. They probably thought that Jesus was going to be another type of Judas Maccabeus. Military victory, military might. And what does Jesus do? How does he draw us to our knees in worship? It's not by banging his scepter and and, uh, yelling for us to bow. It's by giving it up. Do you see? This is the nature of Jesus. The eternal nature of the Father, Son, and Spirit is to self-give to the point where we see the beauty and we bow. This is the essence and nature of spiritual formation. That we see the beauty of what Jesus has done. Not only that he would go so low, but he would be so high. And he does not lord it over us. But he is the lamb that we come to worship. So Jesus' humility reveals the glory of God. His humility shows the true nature, the true essence. You want to know what God is really like? He's the one that gives it all up for you to come in. Soren Kierkegaard, um, when I was thinking about this passage and this this idea of, of Jesus' great humility, that before the Father, he would gladly um, give his life. Soren Kierkegaard writes of a king. So imagine a king who loves a lowly maiden. This maiden is just a peasant uh, girl in the village, and the king loves her, but he's not sure how to get her to him. First idea, he thought, well, I'll bring her into the palace. I'll bring her into all that I have. But then he starts to worry, if I do that, she'll always feel unworthy. She'll always feel like I owe her something. She'll see this palace, she'll know that I've brought her in, and we won't ever have a real relationship. Because she'll always see it as, well, I I owe him my life, I owe him my gratitude. So that won't work. Then he thinks, well, what if I put on all my splendor, all my robes, and march out with the finest uh, infantry and all of the people of the palace and let her see my glory, my might, my power. But he says, the problem still remains. She'll forget herself. She'll only see me. And she won't have true relationship. So what is he going to do? And this is what Soren Kierkegaard says. If then the unity could not be brought about by an ascent, then it must be brought about by a descent. The lowliest of all is one who must serve others. Consequently, God will appear in the form of a servant. But this form of a servant is not something put on like the king's plebeian cloak, which just by flapping open would betray the king as pretending to be lowly. It cannot be something put on, but must be his true form. Look, there he stands, God. Where? There. Can you not see him? He is God, and yet has no place to lay his head. The form of the servant was not something put on. Therefore, God must suffer all things, endure all things, be tried in all things, hunger in the desert, thirst in his agonies, be forsaken in death, absolutely equal to the lowliest of human beings. Soren Kierkegaard is is saying that the only way for this lowly maiden to have true relationship with the king is for him to truly become the servant. 
Not a, not a mask, not something put on for a time, but to show his true nature as a servant, to be brought low in order that she can be glorified with him. As we end this thinking, um, the beginning of humility is to see this nature of, of Jesus, this nature of God. Jesus doesn't cling to his equality with God, right? But the story of the human nature is different. We were not equal to God and yet thought God's equality as a thing to be grasped, didn't we? We were not equal to God, but we thought his equality was something to be grasped. We took from the tree to eat, to become like God. And throughout human history, we have always tried to reach out and obtain God, to become like God. And this is the sin of human nature. The, the, the foundation of all sins is that we are trying to be like God. When we see something in Scripture, and we do the opposite, because we want to rule our lives, we are trying to reach out to become like God. And yet, what do we see Christ do? How does he rescue humanity? He gives it up to come for us. So this morning, um, just wanted to unpack a little bit of Philippians, too, as I've been thinking about these passages for a great while. And the thing that has changed my heart, my mind so much, and is continuing to do this, this process of sanctification, is seeing the depths of which the Creator would go to bring us back, to give it all up. And this is what Paul puts before his people. Not a checklist, not a thing for you to do, but what has Jesus done? What has the eternal Son done for us? He's given it up, and now he reigns. If these two things don't produce in us a humble heart, then nothing will. His humility reveals his glory. And his glory is seen not in him lording it over, but by us humbly bowing. Would you pray with me? Father, you came and you died and you gave up your life so that we might have it. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would see your grace and your beauty, that we would see what it means that you, leaving the safety and the security, the eternal love of the, of the Trinity and coming and dying for us, taking on our sin, our shame, our guilt, and yet you defeated death and you raised. I pray, Lord, that you would use this image before us to bring us up into likeness. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us when you didn't have to. We pray this in your name. Amen.